out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Terry Banks, member of Dot Dash and also been in various bands, including Julie Ocean, The Saturday People, Tree Fort and also St Christopher. Anyway, this is the interview and after several minutes of casual chat, talking about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. We got down to that interesting subject that was the formative music years. Terry, tell us everything about your formative years. It's over to you. I'm not sure if glam really happened in America. I, th- I think they, I mean, Bowie, I think kind of Space Oddity did. They used to play when I was in elementary school, which is like, I guess what you call primary school in the UK. Yeah, they would play Alice Cooper's Schools Out, you know, all over the loudspeaker on the last day and stuff. But um, I was not paying that much attention to music as a child. As I got a bit older, kind of mid-70s, um, I was born, uh, like you, I was born in 65, so it's so kind of same age. Yes. Um, uh, uh, as I got kind of into late 70s, um, I started cutting lawns in my neighborhood and had a bit of spending money, and I, I bought... Um, Live at Budokan by Cheap Trick, which was a current record, and I, I liked them. But I wasn't finding much music or noticing much music in the mainstream, which is all I was exposed to as a kid, yes. uh, that, that was interesting to me. I, I remember seeing on ABC television, um, you know, some documentary that I was fascinated by. It was, you know, the, the rock and roll or something, and it would have these little clips of Buddy Holly or, you know, like Mersey Beat Beatles. And, you know, this is a generation before the internet or... It was even before VHS tapes or anything. It was just, you know, if it was on television and you saw it, you saw it. And if you didn't, you, you didn't. But I, you know, even 10 or 15 seconds of these kind of mid 60s things, or in the case of Buddy Holly, you know, sort of, I guess, late 50s, it just looked so vital and cool and, and kind of direct in a way that I wasn't seeing in current music. So I sort of, you know, it was almost like looking in this time machine, like, oh, there used to be good music, but I just wasn't quite getting it from current stuff although as i say i sort of liked cheap trick because they they had a little bit of that but yes well actually it was interesting because that was an album that i absolutely consumed in probably about 1979 1980 i just remember being absolutely mesmerized by that album and i loved there were several tracks on the side i think side two which I surrender, surrender, and uh, yeah, I want surrender. you to want yeah, me. Sure. And I was just yeah. like, wow, you know. And it was also this one of those. This song is from our new album. <laughs> yes, I, I know, I and and I can't remember the drummer's name when he introduces Bunny somebody. Bunny Carlos. And he sort of yeah. you know, the greatest drummer in the world. And and funny enough, it was only it was that period that I really liked live albums. But now I can't stand live albums. But then right, was, right, there right. was like, but we also I had an older brother who was seven years older, and he had those. He was into prog rock a bit of yeah. heavy metal just well deep purple and black sabbath but he also had elo oh yes pete frampton right. comes live frampton comes live was one of those ones that i think everyone yeah. had in the 70s and that again was one of those albums that i consumed so i really liked the alive album and then with age i think God, yeah, that's, I hate, you know that's a them. good point i mean yeah the live albums you know with the gatefold and all of that that was a kind of an iconic thing um uh but you know, yeah, I know what you mean. In retrospect, I wouldn't be so interested. But 
I guess, like I say, I was sort of, you know, peripherally aware of and interested in music, but it wasn't until um, 81-ish that um, through a friend of mine in high school and his older brother, um, they were kind of into punky new wave music. Um, uh, and I sort of started hearing about good stuff from them. And we went off to a gig in the summer of 81 to see the, the flesh tones in this little bar in, in Baltimore, um, in a kind of, uh, you know, down at the hills part of town in this really great little club called the marble bar it's in the basement of this kind of decrepit hotel called the Congress hotel. And I saw the flesh tones there and I was just, totally entranced by the, um, yes. the the audience, just the crowd and just the vibe. And it was back in the early 80s. They, I mean, I would have been 16. Cl clubs and bars and things in America just didn't really card or they sort of carded sort of half-heartedly. So they weren't really, they were just letting any age in. And we were just kids going in there. And, and it was amazing. And I was just sort of like, what is this, you know, Alison in Wonderland kind of thing. Like I just never seen this kind of bohemian, arty, punky underground world. And, and sort of coming out of that, I don't mean just that gig, but that gig was kind of the entree point. I just got really, really, really interested in, in, um, in cool music for lack of a better term. And until then I'd, I'd been sort of, you know, kind of, you know, peripherally interested but yes. i just didn't see anything that turned it on for me and this i was like oh there's this other world um, yes the flesh tones classic do you know what i mean and, and it was just like whoa what is this um and they were just kind of i mean i know now if you look at them they're sort of and i think it's great that they're still playing i mean we, we had the, the the good luck to play with them a few years ago in, in baltimore actually but um they're more sort of a, a fun kind of thing now but back then they were a really kind of unhinged sort of kind of crazy performing unit i mean they were they were full-on intense yes uh, well i think they were yeah they were sort of because i did an interview with um, one of the members i can't remember his surname it was peter and um yeah, they did uh, seem yeah. like one of those a bit like the fuzz tones and flesh tones with i used to slightly get mixed up which was embarrassing but um right. yes they were they were definitely one of those the, the kind of classic kind of yeah, they were quite off the wall, really. And I think, you know, they, they sort of have maintained that and they're still playing and so... Yeah, well, they had a kind of a darkness to them, too, in, which you probably wouldn't pick up on. But back then, um, you know, a little-known fact is that the guy who played saxophone in in the um, in the Flesh Tones ha had been in jail for murder or manslaughter or something. And I mean, like, they had a... <laughs> They had a really kind of edgy sort of thing, which is funny because they were sort of this bacchanalian sort of joyful garage rock thing. But they were sort of, you know, kind of Lower East Side kind of edgy, edgy dudes. I mean, maybe I just saw that as a, maybe as just a 16-year-old that they felt that you felt that way. But it was just really cool. It was just a, one, of, one of those gigs you go to where you're like, oh. I was one person going into the gig and another person coming out of the gig, which, you know, it might sound like a, a bit of a overstatement, but you know, at that age, you can kind of get turned on to stuff or interested in stuff pretty quickly. Well, yes, you know? absolutely. Um, no, it's it, it, the, the formative years is everything really, and it's interesting because the because you probably like me, slightly was a bit too young for the real punk period yeah you know. so when it was sure. kind of, I, I sort of heard the names of these bands but i mean at those at that time you know you couldn't just quickly listen to it if you you had to sort of you 
either had someone borrow it, you know, lend it to you, or you had to go and buy something. But you, you didn't even have the chance to listen to something to take that no. gamble. You know, you couldn't even have 20 seconds to well, sort of work out whether it was something you liked or not. And so, yeah, things like the Sex Pistols and the Clash and the Buzzcocks and, and yeah. Damn, I mean, they, they just all passed me by until sort of a few years later. So it was kind of, I suppose I... Luckily, David Bowie was the first kind of single I bought, yeah. Space Oddity. And then I was always intrigued with Bowie and then the chart stuff. My older brother, who was seven years older, he was into, you know, like all that prog stuff. So it was kind of the early 80s when I began to feel, feel a little bit more kind of curious with what was what was kind of happening then, what was happening at that moment, rather than listening to the stuff from the 60s and the 70s and discovering bands like Spirit, thinking, God, that's amazing. But thinking, yeah, yeah that was 1972, The Twelve Dreams of Dr. Sedonicus. So, um, yeah, it, was the, it wasn't really post-punk because I was still kind of a bit unsure with that, but it was kind of the indie scene. So you obviously, kind of 81, 82, you were also having moments of musical yeah, awakening. Exactly. I mean, I, I can remember, the same thing with punk, you know, um, I remember, you know, there's there's a Sunday night news show that's still going called 60 Minutes. And I remember when I was about 12, which would have been about 77, they did like some segment on, you know, punk rock. And there was this guy in a tie and a blazer, you know, they call this band the Sex Pistols. And then it's like, uh, you know, like <laughs> Johnny, Johnny Rotten, you know, flashing V signs and, uh, you know, and, I, you know, as a 12 year old, I was just like, whoa, what is this? You know, it was, <laughs> it was, it was, you know, kind of like terrifying. And then. A couple of years later, and again, this is like the forget pre-internet, pre-VHS. I was thinking like, oh, cool that I saw that. What, you know, I was trying to like replay it in my mind because the, by that time, I had the Bollocks album, and you know, I would, you know, I was late to the party, but as I was just getting into stuff then, and it was like, whoa, I love this, you know. But you know, around the same time, kind of eighty-one, mid eighty-one, I discovered um, this great record store in in Towson where I was from um called record and paid traders i think it was called or i know it was called and it started out in a house it was just it was just in the first floor of this Vic kind of beat up victorian house and then it moved into a sort of proper shop front but they had just tons it was all used and just amazing records for like lps were like three bucks singles for a dollar fifty and i thought you know, this is 81, so these records were kind of two or even three years old, but I got like the jam all mod cons and the first Bunny Man album, which was probably about maybe only even a year old then, and this album by the group called the Barracudas Dropout with the Barracudas and a Purple Hearts record and all this sort of stuff. And I was just kind of devouring this stuff. And, you know, that kind of some of those groups led me back to 60s things. You know, you, you like the jam, and then somehow you get a sense, oh, they liked the early Who, so I bought a early, you know, meaty, beady, big and bouncy. I think it's called the Who singles from the 60s. Yes. And, and the birds, I got into that. Um, but not in like a sort of retro way. I just was kind of loving this new wave and punk, post-punky stuff, and then realizing, oh, some of these bands are drawing from from bands that at that point were only sort of 12, 15 years in the past, which is weird to think about. But, you know, um, it was just a kind of a, you know, uh, I, I sort of dove in head first and the same friend uh, and his brother who were kind of new wavy punky guys for a rarity in my, my school. But we used to go down to um, these in, in England, I guess they call them char charity shops here. They're called like thrift stores. And we used to go down into Baltimore, this 
giant place called DAV, Disabled American Veterans Warehouse. And we you could buy all these really cool, like, 60s-ish kind of punky new, you know, just clothes that were really cool and unusual for like 50 cents or a buck. And for me, that, that kind of was tied in, just being interested in these kind of, I don't know, sort of just different sort of clothes and stuff, like 60s clothes. I know that, I don't know, to me, it felt very new, it felt in touch with the new wave and punk stuff, which may or may not have been actually the case, but, you know, it was, yes. it was just that time where you're just getting really interested in in a different kind of culture than than maybe the one you knew as a, you know, 14-year-old just, you know, riding around your neighborhood on your bicycle or whatever, so, you know, I just, so I just started getting interested in, in kind of, I, I really, what it is is kind of bohemian, arty, punky stuff that I didn't even know existed. And once I did, I was like, ah, oh, I'm, I'm in. <laughs> yes. And Baltimore. Did you mention Baltimore, didn't you? So the only time we've ever really come across Baltimore from the UK was the work of John Walters, you know, the... Um... Oh, right, right. Well, John, John Walters is actually from the same town as me. Yes. I'm from a town, town called Lutherville, which is sort of 10, 12 miles north of Baltimore. And he's from there. And Divine actually went um, to my high school, um, obviously kind of half a generation before. Um, but that's a kind of a proud proud moment but um yes yeah john, john water's parents live in this um I, they're probably dead now probably passed away but i actually know where his house was because he lived in this really weird like when he was a kid this pink gingerbread house which faces down this hill and so yeah so he he's a you know a, a baltimore native son and he's actually from lutherville which is um a suburb of, of a, a northern suburb of Baltimore, but yeah, I mean, Waters is, you know, he's an iconic, an iconic figure. So sure. look, because when he's ever mentioned Baltimore, he always mentioned mentioned going to strip clubs and things like that yeah. in Baltimore, and saying, you know, the strippers. It was a bit desperate the way he described it. That yeah, the strippers. It, well, the, it he said that you know <laughs> the strippers would almost come out just naked and then just look at the weediest guy and say, "What are you looking at?" You know, and it was kind of it yeah, makes a very funny story. But I, I you know, we love John. Yeah, it, well, it's a bit of a rough, rough place, no, no doubt. Uh, there's no question about it. And he's talking about a, uh, an area called the Block, which I think has been probably, you know, whatever gentrified or whatever. Um, but it's yeah, I mean, it's pretty. Icy place. I mean, I, I live in Washington, um, in D.C. Uh, and when I was a kid, when we would come down here to see gigs at this place called the Nine Thirty Club, coming to D.C. was like coming to Europe or something. It just seemed super sophisticated and, you know, whatever. And I now look at it and think, well, what was it that I thought was so, so sophisticated? I mean, I, I, I think I was kind of easily impressed, but. But D.C. Is, is a very different place than Baltimore. D.C. is like kind of international sort of kind of, not, maybe not all that much, but it, it sort of is. Yes. Um, and, and, and Baltimore is, no, no knock on Baltimore, it's got some very cool things and some really cool people. But, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a, you know, um, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a, of a rough place. There's, there's some really cool, nice leafy parts, too. That's not to completely... Yes. Um, oh, yes. You know, and things you know change. I mean? but, yeah. <laughs> but it is. It, it does have a bit of a kind of a edgy sort of quality. But some people really like that, that aspect of it. So. Well, you know, absolutely. That, yeah, and I just remember, you know, being. 
obsessed with listening to John Walters, especially his interviews. He gave good interviews and would often talk about Baltimore yeah. quite a lot. So, so when yeah. did you start to go from being a keen music fan collecting to thinking actually I might look to sort of um, kind of move into a, into a band? That's always kind of a curious. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, for a long time, that's a that's a really good point. I mean, for a long time, I. Um, uh, I really loved music, but I didn't really have, it didn't really occur to me that um, uh, I, you know, I, I would play music, but, but that I kind of fell into, I mean, that happened in, in college. Um, when I went off to, to college, um, a roommate of mine was in a cover band that did like Costello and Joe Jackson and, you know, Radio Free Europe by REM and stuff like that. And they were kind of, you know, just a cover band for a short time. And he had a guitar and I would sort of pick his guitar up. And I think I fig figured out two or three chords that I could strum over and over. And I would just sort of sit there and, you know, A, 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 E, 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 you know, D, D, D. And I couldn't, I couldn't really play, but I could sort of pretend like I could play. And, and one day um, in the mid eighties, sort of 85. Um, and you might remember this cause it was, I think it actually, I remember the enemy and stuff you used to do these big features on the Velvet Underground, but that that DU album got um, re-released or, or not. Or oh yes, yeah, yeah. You know, it was kind of um, not re-released, but released for the first time, and it was sort of a really it was an outtakes album, but a really good outtakes album, and sort of everyone who was into kind of cool music was into that. And I knew about the Velvet Underground a little bit because I used to read this magazine called Trouser Press, and I bought the. REM's Chronic Town EP right when it came out for like three bucks used it was like a cutout like a promo but I was really kind of entranced by that getting back to that kind of 82-ish time frame and I read about there's like a little half page article on them in Trouser Press where they said oh you know where the guitar player was saying oh you know we, we really like the Velvet Underground and I bought the, the album you know just a tape of it for bucks and I kind of knew who they were, but the VU thing kind of brought them up. And anyway, my roommate showed me how to play Femme Fatale, which is a really beautiful song, an amazing song, and quite kind of a sophisticated little composition, but it's quite easy to play. And and he was just like, you just do this, and then this, and then this, and this. And, and, and I, it was like, I was like, oh my God, I'm playing Femme Fatale. You know, this is... <laughs> It's yes. an out-of-body experience, you know, how, you know, it, you know, how, how did this happen? And in the same way that kind of, you know, I saw these interesting things a couple of years before that, it, gigs and stuff, I came out of that like, oh, I can, I can do this, but I didn't want to, for better or worse, and maybe I should have been more formalist about it, but I just started, you know, trying to write my own songs, um, I skipped all the kind of lessons and learning scales, and I just dove into kind of writing songs um, using the, 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 the kind of palette I had. And a guy who lived in the same dorm as us, um, who had been in a, a Baltimore kind of Joy Division-y band that I actually saw in high school called Boys in the River, he sold me a, a cheap guitar for 100 bucks that was, that was fine. And I just sort of dove in and started writing songs and, and this and that. And, sort of skip forward uh, a couple of years or maybe just a year or two I formed a band with two friends of mine in Richmond, and we were called um, Roy G. Biv after the colors of the rainbow which seemed like a great idea at the time but you know in, in retrospect maybe wasn't such a great name we later changed our name to the Kiss Bands and 
played around Richmond for about a year, um, you know, gigs with other local bands, but it was pretty amazing, you know, I had only been playing about a year and a half, but we did all originals, guitar bass, I played guitar and sang, and there was a bass player and drummer, and it was sort of like, oh, wow, I'm, I've been so passionate into this, and now I'm actually, you know, in a band, and we're playing gigs in actual clubs in front of actual humans, and you know, <laughs> it just, it's, it was really, felt really wonderful, even though it was about as small time as it could get, I, I, I just loved, loved doing it, so that was kind of the start. Early twenties at that point, so I, I was I felt like a late bloomer, um, but in retrospect, you know, it was fine. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And then and then sort of because the eighties, you know, as you know, we got the punk, we had the post punk period, and then you had those bands a bit like the Associates, and then you had Big Country yeah. U two, and then you had that kind of moment where the the kind of indie world started to really become a thing, and that was when the Smiths happened in eighty three, and there was definitely a fun feeling. I mean, you'd had Orange Juice before, but then you had like the Smiths, and then from from sort of eighty three to eighty seven, which was the years of the Smiths, you know, indie pop in the UK was you know incredible. And then you had yeah. people like the June Brides and you had the Go-Betweens and the Triffids and, you know, the Wolf Hands and Yeah, Yeah, No. And, you know, those other quirky bands like Big Flame and Bogshed and Stump who were happening. So there suddenly seemed to be this explosion of quite exciting stuff. And, you know, we've got a fuzz box and we're going to use it. And the Sidleys and, you know, it was just like indie pop yeah. sort of was just full on and we had you know people like John Peel who sort of used to play a lot of this stuff on his evening show because he was on three or four times a week and then you had the NME Melody Maker Sounds and Record Mirror so it's kind of all kind of happening so how did your 80s develop? Yeah well um so you know when I was in Richmond off at college there there was a really good scene there and there was a club called Rockets, you know, very 80s name, but a little kind of hole in the wall bar that nonetheless booked really, really great bands because it was kind of the early days of the kind of the U.S. kind of indie um, sort of network or whatever. I mean, that, that had really started, obviously, with, you know, CBGBs and, and all of that um, in, in, the, in the sort of mid mid 70s. But, you know, by the by the front part of the 80s. Um, you know, it, it, it was building out, but there was this, there were still gaps. So like the region Richmond, which is a smallish place, got so many good bands was that DC was a big place and all the touring bands, whether they were American or British or wherever were playing there. And then a lot of them were going down to this place in Atlanta called 688, which was a place. And there was nothing really between DC and Atlanta. And that's a long, long drive. So a lot of them would play Richmond to kind of break the trip up, even though it's not anywhere near equidistant. You know, Richmond is way closer to D.C. than it is Atlanta. I mean, it's only about 100 miles. But, um, you know, there were amazing bands coming through. And I was, you know, the 3 o'clock, Who's um, do The Replacements, Long Riders, Rain Parade. I saw the Smiths tw twice back then, but they were in D.C. You had to go up to D.C. to see them. But I was just... Um, loving all of that stuff and then later i went to england um and spent kind of a couple of years there i sort of came back to the states in the middle of that but um I so, had read so how did you how did you find yourself in england all oh, right well um you know I, I got out of university and um like i said i was playing in that band and stuff and i just sort of felt like um 
as much as I liked being in Richmond and I had some great friends and was having a lot of fun, I just sort of felt like, you know, I wanted to get out and see the world as it were. And, um, you know, I went over sort of thinking I was just going to go and, you know, do the kind of cliched backpack around kind of, you know, you know, thing. But I ended up staying, you know, I was there all of 89 and then, um, then I came back to the States for a while. Then I was there in 90 for a while. And then I was there basically all of 91. So kind of 89, 91, 89, 90, and 91, um, I was there probably a total of maybe not quite two years. But I just went for the heck of it. And as far as the musical stuff, um, I had, you know, fanzines kind of led me onto music. In college, I'd read, in, there was this British fanzine called Jamming that I, you could buy in, in Plan 9, this record store in, in Richmond. And I had this article about like the first few creation singles, Biff Bang Pow and, you know, The Loft and and, and um, Jasmine Minx and stuff like that. And I thought, oh, this sounds like my kind of thing. And so I bought some of those singles and really liked them. And then um, a few years later, I, I, this was a, an American fanzine called You Can't Hide Your Love Forever after the first Orange Juice album, of course. But they had a thing on Sarah Records. And so I went over when I was in London, you know, and, and I got a job. I was working as a sub editor and, you know, just having a great time and seeing tons of great bands. Um, McCarthy and speaking of jazz and minks, I saw them and the Wolfhounds and just all I just love that stuff. And so I was just seeing those gigs all the time. But I I, I you know, read about I was like, oh, Sarah, that's all right. I, that's that thing I read about. And I saw St. Christopher play. And liked them. And then later, I sent them a cassette of stuff I'd done. And I ended up being in the band, um, which was was cool. So, I mean, to answer your question, I just went to England on sort of a lark. Yes. But, um, but I, I met some, some cool people. And I ended up moving into a group house and um, having just an amazing time and just going out all the time, you know, to seeing bands or, you know, mostly it was seeing bands. And um, I saw the go-betweens and the, like, the laws were happening then. It was, they didn't even have an album. They just had some singles, but the laws were amazing. I would go and see them just about any time they play in London. Yes. Um, so I was just, you know, it was like showing up to, you know, the Haight-Ashbury in 1967. <laughs> so it, to me, it, it just felt like, you know, I was in, in, you know, in the, in the middle of, of, of a indie heaven, really. So when do you? Yeah. I mean, because the St Christopher had been going sort of since the mid eighties, hadn't they? So they'd yeah. sort of done quite a bit. So what was it like joining a band that had already been quite established and has you know brought out quite a few? You yeah, know, it was it was it was cool. It was weird. I mean, it felt it felt like that Sarah scene was kind of over, but it really, but you know. It, 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 it later, it, it still kept going for quite a while after that. And, you know, we played gigs in Germany and France and Holland. And there would be, I don't mean a lot, but there would be, like, we would show up to gigs. Sometimes there would be, it might just be four or five of them, but there would be these kids in, like, you know, Tulu Lagash t-shirts or whatever. Like, that. there's something about that label that, that people were really into um and so it, it was good but the cool the funny thing about st christopher is that they go back even further than people know which i think i think glenn kind of you know being very conscious i think british bands are more conscious of kind of um 
you know, credibility or whatever, but they actually go back to like the almost late seventies, early eighties when they were called Vina Kava and they were sort of like a, like a poppy buzzcocks or something. And they played gigs with like the cure and you ever heard of the Futurama festival in Sheffield? They played, they played at the first one of those had like, you know, you two and the bunny men were on the bill. I mean, Vina Kava were, I think like the very first band on, but they actually kind of go back to that sort of post-punk thing. And, and then they became St. Christopher, as you say, in the, in the mid eighties. And it was much more of a postcard jangly thing. I mean, that's not to say that, that he, he, his stuff wasn't always kind of poetic and sort of melodic, but um, I sort of like, I was interested by their, their post-punk roots and they were sort of like, forget it. <laughs> you know, that never <laughs> happened. <laughs> yes, you know, but you so. but you kind of played on one of their kind of recorded studio yeah kind of EPs, yeah that's right it? so wh- yeah when I joined um their last Sarah single had just come out like it had come out like you know three weeks or a month before um and they had just come back from Japan um too because the Sarah thing had a had a a, a cult in Japan and uh, so I was sort of. I was sort of bummed that I missed that. And the whole time I was in the band, we were always going to Japan in a month. You know what I mean? It was always like this thing that was going to happen in the future. And then right after I left and went back to America, then they, then they went back a few months after that. But um, yeah, the only record, the only St. Christopher record I played on was a um, EP that Slumberland put out a year or two after we recorded it, but we recorded it in um, 91, I want to say, 90 or 91, probably 91, in Paris for French radio. Um, and it was kind of a, you know, a French, you know, as bands had John Peel sessions come out, this is just what we recorded, you know, in, in Paris. Um, and so, yeah, so that, that record came out. So that's the only St. Christopher record I played on, but we played lots of gigs yes. in the UK. The hit parade in, you know, let's see. Um, was that Julian um, Henry, wasn't it? Yeah, they were great. We played with them in in Hull at this place called the Adelphi and in Liverpool. Um, and I thought the hit parade were excellent. I, 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 was, I was impressed. And I'm trying to think who else. Um, played in Wales a few gigs with, some Sarah bands, and I remember that the label, pe- the people who ran the label, Claire and Matt, were there, and um, yeah, just a bunch of shows around the UK. And and then, as I say, we went over to Germany, France, and Holland three times for wow. kind of. Did it feel a bit like a a kind of a dream come true from sort of a being you know a long way from home being in england you know this because when you're a slight tourist even if you're still if you're living here you know if you you know it, it it's not quite you know you're, you're miles <laughs> i'm sort of saying yeah, that you, yeah. you're sort of it doesn't feel like oh, this is where i'm going to live and die i'm not going to be here for the rest of my life because you've probably got family and more connections back in america so you kind of realize it's going to be probably a short period of time. So I just wondered if it just felt like a bit of a dream that suddenly so much yeah, kind of fell into place. Great. It was great. I mean, you know, um, it, it was fun. And, and, you know, there were times where I would be, you know, walking down. So, cause we, we played a lot of gigs. We had a, an English friend who lived in Berlin and had a lot of ties into East, what was then East Germany. Well, I, I guess it, what, it was East Berlin. 
wall came down in fall of 89. But, oh, you know, nice. East Germany was still totally weird. I mean, you know, we went to some of these places like Halle and all, you know, these places, they just were really um, odd, odd places. Um, um, have you ever seen Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory that like the town the kid lives in? Yes. It's like it's really gothic to the dark, weird, like, you know, and you, it, some of the places in East Germany were a bit like that. It was interesting, but it's, to answer your question, yeah, I, I really liked it because I would just be walking down the street in these little towns at 3.30 in the morning thinking, ah, oh, this is great. You know, what, what am I doing here? And I remember one time we went, um, we went over to the continent for probably like three weeks or something. And when I left England, I had a 10 pound note kind of folded into thirds in my pocket. And that was it. I had 10 quid. And I, we went off and did these gigs and it was, it was pretty DIY and, 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 and we were obviously getting paid, but you know, the band ends up spending the gig money on petrol and you know whatever else. And, and so anyway, long story short, I came back, we came back from the gigs, you know, three weeks later, and I still had the 10 pound note in my pocket. So I hadn't, I hadn't made anything, but I'd been in Europe for a couple of weeks, you know, staying out till five o'clock in the morning, every morning, <laughs> every night, you know, and I was still alive. Um, you know, so it, it was, it was fun. It was a really cool adventure. And, and we did it a few times. It wasn't just that time. We went over to the continent, I think three times on ferries yes. and um, and then and as i say we played around the uk a fair bit too which was equally great um well it's interesting because there were know. kind of these gatekeepers you know like you had the john peel show you had the music press so you know a, a new band an indie or quirky band could get a bit of exposure and then every town and city and london probably had loads but would have a kind of an indie alternative night so like norwich you know, yeah. you know, we had the Wild Club in St Benedict Street, and then you had places like the Princess Charlotte in Leicester, and yeah, Leicester, yeah, uh, the Square in Harlow, and then Leeds had the uh, Duchess of York, I think, and you uh, know, the they Rayleigh, all pink, they, the Rayleigh pink toothbrush, yeah, <laughs> and and you know, everybody would have these kind of nights, most on a Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday when. The venue would sort of think, well, you can have any of those nights because it's a bit of a dead time. But you'd get 150 to 250 indie kids kind of crawling out of their kind of bedrooms. And, uh, you know, after listening to the various shows from their TDK D90 cassette and going to see these bands for about three pound for, you know, right. normally three, three pound for three bands normally. So it was something, you know, so it was quite good in the way it worked. It kind of gave people, if you're in a band, something to look forward to rather than just going, right, we've got no gigs, so we're going to have to put our own gig on and play in front of the same people, you know, your friends and family, right. and anybody else you can emotionally blackmail to see. So it's great having the ability to travel in your trusty white transit van up and down the countryside. And those, that's right. You know, yeah. to no, see that. So then, I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say. So from St. Christopher, then, then what happens to you from early nineties? Uh, let's see, early nineties. So I, um, let me think. So I came back, um, and uh, but but I agree with what you're saying about clubs. I just remember in in London, real quick, uh, the uh, Falcon. And Drummonds and the sausage meat, but you're, you're right. Every city had had it, its cool. Well, they always little... had the. I think it was the George Roby was very famous, wasn't it? And the um, yeah, K 
Kentish Town area. Yeah, Finsbury Park. Yeah, you're right. I know what you mean. I remember that place. I saw some stuff there. But yeah, yeah so early 90s. Um, so I came back to America. Um, and musically, let's see, um, uh, Treefort Angst went from being kind of my solo acoustic, like Roddy Frame, Tracy Thorne, Grant McLennan kind of, you know, thing that I was trying to do and it became a guitar based on drums and a little more a little more upbeat or whatever and we Treefort Angst went for a few years and we um had three or five uh, four four seven inches come out on on various different little labels what a German label and bus stop which was a um sometimes a, the American Sarah I don't think the guy who ran it really um agreed with that but but um yeah, so we just played gigs and, and had a few seven inches come out, and then we had an album come out um, through Bus Stop and Dutch East India, and did that for a couple of years. And then coming out of that sort of 93, 4 time frame, I started a band um, with a woman I knew, Pam Berry, and a friend of our, hers and ours, um, Dan Searing, and that was called Glowworm, and that was more sort of like a very heavy. Tracy Thorne type of, you know, rainy day, jingle jangle, you know, soft focus kind of indie pop thing. Yes. Well, we love yeah. that. So did yeah. you, were you, because cause in that period, you know, when the Smiths broke up, which was like, my God, the Smiths have broke up. That's horrendous. Yeah, it was right. like, it was like the Beatles. But then you had, 87, e- yeah. then e- Ecstasy came in and, and the sort of the, the next generation of 16, 20 year olds who were coming along, who, you know, had replaced the previous gang, you know, from say 83 to 87 for yeah. argument's sake. You know, the next generation want their kind of bands. They don't really want to listen to old fogey music like the be like the Smiths anymore. And then, you know, so there was the dance scene, you know, you had the Happy Mondays and Stone Roses and Primal Scream. Mm. Soup Dragons who'd managed to go from indie to dance wrote remarkably well. So that helped their career. And so yeah, there was a right. di- there was a new sound in town. And I think a lot of bands at that stage, you know, f- from interviewing them, found that actually the music papers have moved on. Everybody now wants to sound a bit like, you know, a bit of a dance ravey thing going down. Right. And, and most and five years within a band normally is is enough unless you're multimillionaires, which most bands aren't. So they go, right. well, I've, I've made no money. We're getting on yeah. each other's nerve, you know, or worse. And um, they quit then, you know, and the music scene changed into that dance. And then a few years next later, you had the Seattle grunge scene that had sort of kind of swept yep. over and that obviously grew from you know like the bleach album to Nevermind, and you yeah. know the pixies and the throw muses and all that kind of stuff to you know this phenomenal teen spirit world with Kurt Cobain and and that yeah. that kind of obviously that kind of goes sour after a few years and then you had the beginning of kind of Brit pop which kind of had some great right. stuff in it and it had some horrendously boring stuff and the lad yeah. magazine and all that kind of business oh and, right yeah so that was drastic. So were you, I mean, were you sort of aware of those kind of musical kind of Yeah, yeah you know, um, uh, back when, I, are, are there paper, you know, I remember when I was in England, I used to always buy, you know, the, when I was there for those couple of years, I used to buy the Enemy and the and Melody Maker. And Wednesday or Tuesday they came out. They, it was, I think the um, Enemy for us was a Wednesday. I seem to remember yeah, Wednesday. Yeah, it was Wednesday was. afternoon and they were like 65p and, and sounds and all that, but you could still buy those in America. Um, 
at this place in Washington called Olson's and it just sort of like a hip groovy record store would, would sell those. They were a week late, but it was still kind of cool. And yeah, I used to love that stuff. Um, do those papers still even exist? They're probably gone, right? They've gone. They've sadly yeah, yeah. gone. I think the NME yeah, yeah, yeah. now, I think there's a presence on the web, on, on a website right. that I have possibly, I never looked at actually. Right, right, right. <laughs> but so anyway, that's, those things, those print um, mags were still going. And, and I used to buy those just because I liked, I liked, I, I enjoyed it. I probably wasn't overly enamored of a lot of the music, you know, flowered up and stuff like that. But, um, uh, but yeah, I, I, I was I was aware of that stuff. But American, the American scene um, was certainly then, and I would still say now, to the extent there is one, it, it was kind of way far underground. In in the UK, bands could kind of blow up out of nowhere, and you know, play three gigs. And 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 you know, I remember Suede or something had played a handful of gigs, and they were on the cover of Enemy. You know, Britain's best band or whatever. So yes. the, the 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 rocket ship of groups that could just explode out of nowhere, which I think is really cool and exciting. In America, it was very regional um, and, and, and kind of local. Um, so that's a long way of saying that well, I completely hear you about Acid House and all that. That didn't really change my focus or, or kind of the focus of people who I knew. And I, and I, I would say just, just about anybody who was doing sort of indie music because there was never any, I could see how British groups might be like, oh, we either have to give up or we have to sort of, you know, the, the leopard has to change its spots. American bands would be less likely to do that because no one would have heard you in the first place. If that makes sense. You know what I mean? Yes. You're doing it, you're just doing it for its own artistic rewards and, and the hope that you can get so that someone somewhere who has a little indie label will put out a seven inch single or put you on a compilation album and, and you'll you'll get a few fanzine reviews and maybe some college radio airplay, and that that is success. You know what I mean? So um, the stakes, I think, were were lower. So I think American bands. Not that you can, you know, uh, sort of paint people with that broad a brush, but I think British groups were a lot closer to sort of, you know, the the, the sparkle of showbiz than American bands and i mean indie bands even british indie bands could i could see how they could kind of believe like we're going to be on top of the pops because it wasn't that far away if you know what i mean whereas in the states it would be like maybe the local paper or something you know what i mean it's just just the stakes were much lower it was more um yeah i i, th I, th I think hopeless. you know things because <laughs> I, mean. I think things can sort of happen very quickly well it did it certainly seem to in the old days where yeah, like you said, Suede were one of those bands that went sort of, I think everyone's sort of desperate for the next thing, you know, and not just yeah. in, the, in the sort of X factor, but in the sort of indie factor in those days. You yeah, were just so I, excited I when a new band came along. It's right, I'm not knocking it. I, I think that that was kind of cool. I always thought that that was really kind of, kind of fun. Um, but I think it was kind of unique to the UK. Um, yes. Because country while heavily populated is is small in size and it had a national media you know if john peel played you people from you know northern scotland to brighton heard you you know um, yes and and, and also i think the good thing the interesting thing unlike twitter the way you know there might be a billion people on twitter and they might i don't know like it or retweet yeah. 
the I suppose it's the fact that you know it doesn't really mean much you know if a million people sees your tweet but with John Peel you know less people might have listened to the show but the likelihood is that everyone was yeah. 100% on it and like me I hardly ever listened to it live I'd always record it put it on my cassette right. and then have to listen to it a few times to digest what I've heard but it yeah. was it was a very kind of focused kind of it wasn't like oh you know a, a tweet you know like someone tweeted this morning and I would have missed it and probably, you know, yeah, exactly, you know what I mean? Exactly. You, and, and you I, know, you'd have to be tweeting every 20 minutes to make sure someone saw that message. But then you could be away for a few days and go, oh, yeah, Twitter, I forgot about that. And it's kind of gone. So a lot of stuff is so ephemeral in that way. Whereas something like John Peel, you know, we, we're still reminiscing about it 30 or 40 years I, later. I agree. And, and I mean, social media, if you think about it, you're kind of talking to yourself. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, and, and, and yes, whereas... Yeah. You know, if you had a little, even a little quarter page feature in Melody Maker or, or whatever, you know, it could be a fanzine here in America or like on the radio, it, it, it was actually, um, it was one way communication, but it, it somehow feel, felt more, I don't know, um, substantive or whatever. But that, that may just be rosy glasses. I mean, it's, I yes, I mean, there is a, no. there is an element to that, but then there is an element that I realized there's that or like I sort of mentioned that those little gatekeepers, you know, and it was all, it all seems very small, but actually it also was so significant, you know, like the little club being run by a, a young person who, you know, wasn't making any money from it, but was passionate for a few years of putting that right. indie night on, on a, I think, I don't know, it was Monday or Tuesday right. in Norwich at the Wild Club. And, right. you know, that was, that was their little hobby and passion. Right. And, and they were picking bands up from the John Peel show. And, you know, they didn't, you know, John Peel had a small listening, you know, audience compared right. to Steve Wright in the afternoon or Bruno Brooks or somebody like yeah. some classic daytime Dave jock, Dave Lee right. Travers, the good, good old days. But, you know, those, but those kind of people, you know, that you would then, if that, that person put a gig on, we'd get 150, 250 people yeah. in Norwich on a Monday night to see that band. And, um, so it was kind of focused. And then obviously, you know, there was a sort of loyalty of buying the single, buying the T-shirt, buying the album. And, you know, 30 years later, still feeling quite warm and glowing about them. So um, I think, yeah, it was it was it is a bit rose tinted. But then I realized it was kind of like this. It was quite organic and it was quite a sort of, uh, yeah, you know, it was quite a nice organism of kind of something that was alive in a very sort of real way. Yeah, I agree. I mean, although the one thing I would say is that, you know, um, pre to COVID-19, the gig thing is still totally happening in that regard, at least as, as we've experienced it. I mean, there's still, as you were saying, there were, you know, young people putting on club nights or sometimes not so young people putting on club nights. More yes. Often. Um, that's still alive and well. I mean, I say that, you know, up until about March of this year, unfortunately, when, you know, we, we all got to, you know, dealing, dealing with this, you know, dreadful pandemic, but, um, but that is still going. Um, so that's, I mean, that's my top to not being just a complete, you know, you know, back in my day, I mean, there's still, um, at least in some places, there's still really good live, um, yeah. circuits. So I mean, it's different, but you know, what's that saying? The more things change, the more they stay the same, you know? So I feel like there's still lots of cool things happening as oh, well. God, uh, yes. you know, not now in this terrible pandemic side, but I, you know, hopefully, you know, when, when normal life, normal ish life. Returns, it, it, yes. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure the 16 to 18 year old is, has got their thing that they're absolutely passionate about, that they'll be reminiscent about when they're 
40 years down or the line. Or even just people our age who are still into this stuff. It's cool. You know, we've played with tons of, you know, Scott Tash has played with tons of bands who are, you know, from back in the day. And, you know, you can roll your eyes and say, oh, why bother? But they're still great and people are into it. And Yes, you know, well, absolutely. Why not? So, so just going through, because... Because we got up to, well, I don't know, we got up to, so you did Treefall Angst, then you did The Saturdays yeah. People, and then you did um, Julie Ocean, didn't you? Yeah. So, yeah, so, so yeah, there was Glowworm, which was a girl singer in kind of, as I say, kind of Tracy Thorne type vibe. And then, um, then my wife and I went to Australia, and we were there kind of 95 to 97. Um, and... Uh, and that was great. And, and I tr- was interested in doing some music there and met some nice people. And, and but, you know, it just didn't quite come together, um, which was, you know, which is fine, um, because my musical sort of path has, has always been sort of on again, off again. I'm, I'm always interested, but, you know, it only happens now sometimes. But, well, with the most recent band, it's been pretty steady for gosh, a long time now. But so after the Glowworm, went to Australia, then came back from Australia to Washington and yeah, the Saturday people um, formed and that was two, two guitars, bass and drums with friends of mine, guys I'd known previously. And, um, and that was really fun. It was more kind of sixties ish, at least in our mind, almost kind of monkeys meets postcard or something. Um, uh, And um, we played lots of gigs with like, you know, the people from Heavenly, they, they were called Marine Research at that point, but it was basically Heavenly. Mm. And like Sportique, who were the the guy from the Razor Cuts and the drummer Mark Flunder from Television Personalities. And we kind of had this thing where we we would always get those kind of gigs. Um, and the clientele from England, we played with them a few times. And different bands, we played in New York a, a number of times. And Slumberland a label put out a two seven inches and a album. Yeah. And that, it only lasted about two and a half years, but it was good fun. And that was kind of, yeah, kind of late latter nineties into, into even 2000, but it was, that was, that was cool. Yeah. But then and, you got, that was the Saturday people. You did quite a few. Yeah. Then right. Julie Ocean. Yeah. So then, so then I didn't do music for, a lot from sort of 2000 ish to about 2008, eight ish, 2007, 2008. I didn't really do any music. I, I was still a big fan and still seeing shows and, and loving music, but just didn't happen to be playing music for no particular reason. It was just, just, you know, um, just how it was. But then, um, a guy moved to town named Hunter Bennett and he had been put in touch with me by a mutual friend of ours, Peter Cortner, who was the singer in this band called Dag Nasty, who were on the Discord label. And they were, um, Discord, of course, being associated with hardcore music, but Dag Nasty were kind of like a really, in my ears, really poppy, super melodic punk, you know, punk sort of underpinnings. But I just thought they were just a really great rocking kind of pop punk that's not pop punk is a terrible term, but yeah, they were just, yes. they were just, good. but so, um, but so Peter said, Oh, this new Hunter, he said, Oh, you should look up Terry Banks when you go to Washington. Um, who's moving here. And, and so he and I sort of met up and he was keen to start a band. Uh, and I sort of thought, well, I'm a bit out of it, but then I thought, why not? And, um, I put an ad in the paper, like the city paper, which is kind of, a, it's 
called the City Paper. It's sort of an arts, arts and entertainment weekly kind of thing. And uh, it, well, after the, the net, but I actually just put a print ad in the paper. I think and free and and this guy called, and I think I was advertising for a drummer or second guitarist, and this guy Tim Spellman, who I'd known at that point for almost 20 years called my ad it's funny that i didn't think to call him but he called he called the ad like hey i saw your ad and i was like jim it's me <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, um and so then he joined the band and then he had a drummer a friend who played drums and long story short so we julia ocean got going um and named after the under song of course and same thing we played lots of gigs and a label from Philadelphia called Transit of Venus actually paid for us to go into a really she-she studio, and we made a, a an album that came out, and a song ended up in a TV show. And again, as with the other bands, it only lasted about, gosh, the other bands were kind of two years and change. I, I think Juliation was more like not even two years, but we played lots of gigs and had an album come out, and then Jim moved to... Denver, and that spelled the end of the band. Um, but it was fun. It was, it was cool. And that musically, it was um, kind of power poppy, in, indie, indie rock kind of stuff. You know, I've always loved the jam and, you know, there's just early REM and, and stuff like that. But it was, the stuff was all kind of upbeat and quite, you know, super, anything I do is pretty jangly, but not, not in a Sarah Records way, like in a bit more of a, I don't know, a slightly more oomphy way. Mm. Um, so yeah, so that was that was the Julie Ocean was the last band previous to Dot Dash, which has kind of become my, you know, our, our thing that we're we've we've really but, kept going. But dot, yeah, so Dot Dash, which kind of was about ten years ago, that came together. So what was the, what's the secret for? Um, is it because of the lineup you've managed to sort of stick with the lineup? Yeah. And, well, it's funny um, because you would think it would go the other way, but the older I've got, um, the more appreciative I have become of playing music. When I was younger, I, I mean, I've always liked it and I've always done it, and there have been plenty of periods where I, I wasn't doing it. But but you know, as, as you can tell, more where I have. But I used to have this kind of slightly sort of you know oh, why bother kind of attitude, um, like with Glowworm and, and Tree Fort Angs, we would get offered gigs and we'd just be like, oh, no, thanks. Um, and and as I've got older, I've realized not to be corny or, or you know, too saccharine about it, but just what a great, wonderful thing it is to, to play music and, you know, be creative. And if you're lucky enough to be in a situation where someone is putting out your records, even on a, on a tiny little label, you know, quite underground stakes, it's you know it's amazing. It's really a, a wonderful thing to to, to do, and um, I've just found like I'm a lot more engaged in life if I'm playing music than when I'm not. Um, and so uh, it's not that this is any necessarily any different, but um, you know it's it's not oh the you know this lineup is is more likely to stay together than others. Although we all do enjoy it, but it's just I think just speaking personally, it's just that I just I've come to appreciate it more with. You would, you would kind of think the young person would really, really be into it, and the older person would be like, "Oh, you know, I'm not so interested." I find I'm more interested in it now than 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 I than I was in the past, which well, might be well. It's interesting, silly, but but it's it's just kind of how it is. Well, it's interesting because um, 
I have a few theories in life. Not all of them watertight, but there is there is something about the passing of time. But it, you yeah, know, which is twenty five, thirty years, where sometimes people have started. I don't think it's about you know rose tinted sunglasses, but looking back at a lot of that music from the eighties, you know, because it kind of happened, and then it's like okay, that's good, but you know, we didn't make any money. We've all fallen out. Let's forget it. And then, sort of yeah. twenty five, thirty years later, you know, there's been a lot of kind of revisiting and thinking. Actually, there's a lot of this is really good, and there's a lot of stuff that one missed the first time. And I probably mentioned that earlier, you know, where you just think, yeah. oh well, that there's so much coming out, and I can't listen to all of it, and also I can't afford it, so. Um, and not, and you take a punt on a you know record of the week by the you know in the NME, but then you realise it's absolutely dreadful record of the week, and you think I'll oh. never I'll never do that again because the journalist obviously loves this sort of singer, right. or they just got taken lots of drugs together, and he said yeah that's fine that's going to be record of the week because that cocaine oh, right. is brilliant, so it's all a bit corrupt. But interesting enough, in the last I don't know say you know because my memory's a bit shot now but in the last few weeks i've been interviewing so many bad people who've gone who've got new albums out from there's a band called it's immaterial they've oh, they've wow. been working on them you know new well no Is that the guy from the yachts yes yeah there you go yeah, yeah, yeah. so basically right. what they've done you know he's they've never split up the band but they've just kind of got day jobs and two of the members meet every friday and they found this box of uh, a box of cassettes or recordings they did and so they've you know decided to work on them and really release the album that's coming out next month and then there's a band called bradford and they've just got a new album that's coming out um, you know there's there's kind of a lot of yeah. people like uh, i don't know big flame me you know stroke the great leap forward he's got a new album coming out so it's it's interesting that there's so many people that i've spoke to recently who i can't even remember but basically everybody has got a new album coming out and you're thinking okay you're still you know it's like well i never stopped playing music i stopped being in the band i did other things and i had to get money and i had to get a job probably um but i played music and i had a few little things on the go but i've started to to sort of i don't know Rather than not release it, I started to look at putting stuff out to go into the great out world, um, you know, the big world. So it's interesting. Yeah, I think people do appreciate it because actually within that time between being, you know, say in your early 20s to being in your 50s or early 60s is that we've all, you know, everyone's gone through stuff, you know, like lots of relationship stuff, probably you know health stuff parent stuff pets moving house jobs ups and downs that you kind of you start taking a lot of the very simple things in life and think god that's i'm so grateful for that whereas when you're younger you take everything for granted don't you and exactly exactly. and probably just and if you're english and i'm not saying anybody else but definitely english we love to moan you know the 80s we moaned and moaned all the bloody time that's what you do when you're english and um about everything and then you look back and think god actually it was quite good really wasn't it but we did spend all our time moaning about everything but it's like you know it was it was um yeah there was a lot of good i know stuff. what you mean i mean and, and just you know it, now i mean gigs have kind of been been haven't happened in six months but you know previous to to the uh, the, the pandemic thing i mean we we've had so much enjoyment in dot dash playing gigs with i mean i think the coolest funnest thing we ever did is we played a couple of shows a year ago with the undertones um, sold out shows at a theater in New York and a big place in Boston. And, you know, again, bands that are, and that are older than us, uh, although we're plenty old, believe me, but like the monochrome set and I was looking <laughs> on your, your site, you know, Richard Lloyd from television and, 
just tons of chameleons, you know, just tons of bands that are, you know, from back in the day, but they're still doing their thing and they're great and people are into it. And, you know, um, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's like the, the passage of time is, is, you know, inviolable, but, but, um, you, you can, you, you could just hide under a rock and say, Oh, I don't want to, or you could say, I still really like doing this. And, 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 and I'm really kind of inspired by some of the, you know, bands that we've played with who are still doing their thing. And the people always seem really youthful too. I've, I've always noticed that. Um, yes. Well, I, I, I think, I, I th- you know, yeah, I think you know? one, it's kind of mind over, you know, battle, yeah. mind over body, wasn't it really? Because the last yeah. release you did was, was actually last year, That's Proto right. uh, yeah. Retro. Um, that was on the beautiful music label. Who's that? So the beautiful music is a label that has put out all of our records. We've actually had um, six albums released since 2011. Um, and the beautiful music is a label in Ottawa in Canada. And it's run by a, a guy called Wally Salem. And he has a, a friend, uh, Jamie Nordstrom, who sort of assists him with graphics and stuff. And I mean, it's a total labor of love, although I think he has put out sort of 40, 40 ish records um, it's all super underground. I mean, to show you how underground it is, I mean, Dot Dash is probably the best known group on the label, which should be, you know, a, a shock and horror to, to anyone because if, if we're the big band on the label, you know, it, but it's just been really, really, um, uh, just really kind of wonderful and inspiring. I mean, having played in lots of groups who had different records come out on different labels, you know, Bus Stop and K and Slumberland and, and, and lots. The, the kind of metric was if the record came out within a year of the time the band gave it to the label, you, you weren't doing too badly. You know, it, it, it could be worse than that. And, and the great thing about the beautiful music is like when we've sent them a record, it's like pressed, like no kidding, like two weeks later, like he just gets it done right then. And, and it's almost like that, like sixties kind of dynamic of like, you know, we recorded this on Tuesday and it came out on Friday. You know, I mean, it's not quite at that level, but it's it's just really, um, you know, it's just really been kind of a, a, yes. a, a, a wonderful kind of experience to sort of make music and have it come out concurrent with, you know, playing gigs and, and stuff. And, you know, we'll be the first to say and, and, and Wally from the label will be the first to say that it's it's super underground, but it's it's really been really been great fun and, and we're, we're really appreciative of his support and did you yeah. i mean as, as a sort of an artist did you manage to navigate the world that is kind of publishing and ownership of music because you obviously i know you're in you know other another band so that's probably not something you're gonna you know worry about too much but the only you know your own sort of the music yeah well um, i actually um it'll sound it'll sound very grand but it's actually pretty pretty simple but my songs are actually published by as a smith's fan you'll appreciate that they're actually published by rough trade um and uh which i i, I get a sort of you know uh a kind of uh i don't know i i just somehow like i like that i just wow look at that rough trade i've had i've had records on rough trade yes um as a fan you know um but so my songs are published by uh by rough trade and um we've had uh doc dash has had i i think it's five or six songs licensed for TV and, and for one movie that has given us money to record with. Um, so believe me, I mean, we're totally kind of hand to mouth DIY, but it's not totally, um, uh, 
you know, vanity pride. Like I wouldn't want to be in a band where it was like, you know, these groups who go in and spend $10,000 to make a record that, you know, to give to their neighbor or something like, you know, we've basically gone, most of the records we've gone into, um, we've pretty much had them paid for through licensing and, and gig money. Sometimes we've been a, a little shy of, of where we needed to be, but other times we made a record like with Mitch Easter, who in America was kind of a big 80s. Um, and it was kind of, we just had it paid for. I mean, we didn't have to sort of say, okay, everyone has to kick in, you know, 150 bucks or whatever. We just had it in band money. So, um, so yeah, so that, that's, you know, the, um, getting songs licensed for TV shows has been great. I mean, the, the funny thing is you never know when it's going to happen. I mean, every time it's happened, I've always thought, well, that will never happen again, but then it, it does. But same time, you, you never know. It's, it just. Yes. And do you, um, I mean, did you, with this year, because you brought out the the last album was 2019. Were you planning to do live shows this year? And um, Oh, God, yeah. I mean, we were playing shows and we had, a speaking of gigs, we had, we had two supports, two more su supports with the Undertones who were doing another tour. We were playing with them here in Washington and then another gig in Pennsylvania. We had a gig with the Flesh Tones that got canceled. So, yeah, we would have been playing as much as we could have been. Um, you know, for us, you know, for us, we play like 12 or 15 shows a year. Uh, you know, we'd be happy to play more, but, you know, it's... We, we, you know, it's hard to get good gigs, but but we, you know, we usually end up getting twelve or fifteen um, really cool gigs a year, and um, we would have been doing them, but we did three, I think, in twenty twenty, and then you know the world stopped. Um, yes. But we would, you know, in, but we will we'll certainly come back. We'd love to play again. Um, and one uh, thing, one one thing, I'm always curious because one of the things that finishes bands off, they, you know, there's a there's a few from the UK, but often when people say, oh, yes, we, we went to America to do some dates and do a little tour, and then they often then say, oh, we came back and we split up because it was just it just finished us off. So what is it about touring America that's so difficult for... Oh, well, I think for English bands, for British bands, you know, it's, it's the distance. You know, they just have no idea. You know, it's like if you think about, like in the UK, like Manchester and Liverpool are who, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, you know, uh, two totally different cities, different accents, you know, different, different, even sort of different, I won't say different cultures, but, you know, they're, they're, they're Manchester is Manchester and Liverpool is Liverpool. But the fact is they're like 35 miles apart or something, right? I mean, yes. um, whereas in America, it, you know, like the on-ramp to the highway is 35 miles, you know? Um, so, um, uh, I just think, you know, for British bands, the distances kill them. That said, the Northeast Corridor of America, which is where I live, which is kind of D.C. to Boston, that's kind of a European scale, right? So there's like D.C., Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York, Providence, Boston. You could do there and lots of back in the day and, and still to this day, British groups will come over and they'll do that little run and they feel like they've done America gigged in America and they have, but it's just one part of it. And then there's all the rest. And so, yeah, I mean, I think if you're driving from Denver to Salt Lake city, it's just like, you know, <laughs> it's just really, really hard. Yes. Um, so uh, I, I think, but I think that's true, not just for 
I think that would be true for bands from here, also from here, but they would they would kind of expect like you're British and you think, oh, we're gonna go from Minneapolis to you know Portland. Let's do it. Whereas here you go, oh, that's gonna be really hard. Whereas, <laughs> like, yes. whereas I think if if you're not that familiar with it, it, it sounds easier. But um, but you're right. Yeah, there's lots of you know lots of indie groups from the UK who came here and were you know broken by the, the highways. But there were lots of groups that. I think, and not even all that big, like the Mighty Lemon Drops, they were always touring and it was like, you know, they weren't like some super big band, but some, some, some British groups, I think were real troopers. You know, they, 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 you know, they, they, they didn't kind of crash and burn. They, 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 you know, they were pretty hardy. Yes. Well, absolutely. And just, and just last, uh, you know, question, I mean, I mean, cause you've had a, a very, long and uh, kind of very colorful career mm. in music i mean hopefully you'll have all this documented and bring out a, an interesting publication one day on the, on sort of your, right. your life in music but what would you say say to a, an 18 year old self you know that if you could have said something to to that person when when you were starting i just wonder what you would sort of whisper in their ear to you know with the wisdom that you've sort of picked up um yeah. yes from well, that I, time I, yeah, well, I, I think not just as related to music, but just life in general. I, I think it would be, you know, follow your heart. Um, that might sound a little trite or a little um, pat, but uh, I really, I really think it's true. And I think, you know, if I look back on things, anytime I've really kind of done what I wanted to do, um, it's it's been for the good. And anytime I've sort of said, oh, I don't know, maybe it's more, you know, it's more sensible to do this than that. I've kind of, I've kind of regretted it. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm in the, in the follow your heart camp, uh, be it related to music or just, just life in, in general. I say, you know, don't overthink it and kind of, you know, follow your heart, follow your gut, whatever, whatever phrase it is. But um, I think that's what I would probably tell myself for, for better or worse. Yes. Well, no, it's, it's good. I mean, I think a lot of people often say very, you know, yeah, it's a good percentage of people would say the same, you know, thing that um, mm. that's kind of important. You got to do it, otherwise it's all all rubbish. But but just okay. Just lastly, I mean, with this yeah. album, is, is it the case that you've always got material that you're just thinking, well, when the, when we get the next opportunity, you know, we're just back in the studio for another fourteen tracks. Yeah, it, it it is, and in fact, I mean, we were you were asking about where we gigging. We were gigging all the way up through um, February of this year. Um, and in fact, we rehearsed today just because we still enjoy doing it. And we, we got together and rehearsed today we're wearing masks, which gives it a, a weird dystopian kind of a vibe. But um, um, yeah, we've got 11 new songs that we've been doing, 10 of which we had been doing live, um, one, of, one of which is, is a new one. But um, yeah, we were going to record what would have been our seventh album this spring in, in, in New York City. Um, but, you know, we weren't able to do it. But Fingers crossed for, I mean, I've kind of almost given up on this year. I mean, I used to think, well, maybe in the autumn, but, you know, I, I kind of feel like 2020 is going to be like the year that didn't happen, you know, sort of thing. Um, but yes. yeah, we, we will definitely, um, we, we have a seventh record. We, you know, we have 11 songs that we really are excited about. And, and as I say, 10 of them, we've been playing in gigs, you know, for a while, you know, for better part of a well, a year or six months or something like that. And, um, yeah, we just really love, love doing it and, 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 and 
beautiful music is, as I say, a, a wonderful and supportive label who are sort of like, when you have a record, we'll put it out, which is just such a, um, I don't know, just a, just a, an honor. God, that um, is so good, isn't it, actually? I mean, you know, that is um, beyond, yeah, beyond but, sort of nice. Sort of it's band. just, it is. I just feel so fortunate. So um, to have that, that, that support from, from, from them, it, it really, it's really yeah. cool. Um, so, so yeah, so fingers crossed, I'll be, you know, we'll be sending you a, a record, David, you know, um, will that be amazing you know, someday soon? And, 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 and you'll go, all oh, right, I, I remember these people. Um, <laughs> no, well, that's fantastic. Well, I'm so pleased. And it's such an amazing story. I just had, you know, there was bits, but not that amount that I'd sort of, uh, you are like, Bill. Right. you are the Bill Bryson of the indie world, aren't you? With your trip to, oh. to trip to the well, UK. Maybe, maybe, you know, sort of, you know, kind of super, super, super underground, super obscure, you know, but, but yeah, I, maybe so. Who knows? On a, on a very modest level. <laughs> but I always remember his his book. Did you ever see or read Notes from a Small Island? Now, I know who he is, and I I kind of know what his his thing is. But I, I haven't. I, 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 I I'm, but I'm certainly familiar with what his his um his kind of perspective is. Definitely. Yeah, he's a nice chap, you know. And it was it was kind of That's a good fun. read. I suppose it's interesting his take during that time. I suppose the. 80s of the UK which he, he kind of got spot on really so um but no it's amazing I can't believe you were so on the zeitgeist well and one thing I didn't mention and this is kind of maybe it's not to drag it out but while I was there I was working as a sub-editor and um I wanted to you know this I was very into the creation thing and I sent a, a letter this is back you know pre-internet I wrote a letter to creation this is when they were in Hackney and I said, um, and the magazine was like a business magazine, but I made it about the enterprise allowance scheme and all this about how the label was founded on that. And they wrote back and, and I said, could I interview Alan McGee? And they said, yeah. And, and and so then I went over there. And so speaking of the zeitgeist, I remember going over there. This was Ride was kind of the big band at the time, but it it was it was I think it was a great era for music. I I, I think your show is a really great memorial to, to, to that and I, I remember going over there and hanging around that that office that they had it was above like a tailors or something yes and uh, it was it was it was it was a cool scene and did you do the interview with alan yeah i did and and he um it was sort of a funny thing um he, um I, I was standing up there and I lived at that point. I lived in a group house with a bunch of people, half of whom were Scottish and the other, other half were English. But I was an, an American who sort of prided myself on being able to kind of fit in and not be flummoxed by accents or whatever. So I, I had hung around Scots people plenty of times and I was never, um, never flummoxed one way or the other. But Alan McGee said to me and he said, uh, what time do you have to be boxed in? And I and he was. I'll give the time. He was saying, "What time do you have to be back?" But I could not understand him. And he's going, "What time do you have to be back?" And I said, "Uh, yeah, yeah, sure, that's fine." And Ed Ball came up to me. He's like, "Oh, Terry, uh, Alan's asking, what time do you have to be back?" And I was and I was sort of like, "Oh, oh, right, anytime." It's because he, he we went off in a car and he needed to go to the bank, and so I interviewed him. Uh, as we rode around in a car, but there were lots of times where Alan was speaking, and I and, and I'd be asking him about you know a loft or this bank power stuff, and and I, I could I couldn't quite make out what he was what he what he was saying, but I was doing lots of nodding and and and, and agreeing and saying saying yeah. <laughs> so that was my, my 
my little parachute into the world of creation Excellent. back in their happy days. But um, it was it was a fun little adventure. Yeah, and you met Ed Ball as well, so double. Yeah, up. and Bob, Bobby, the the singer from Primal Scream, was there too, and uh, he gave me a record. It was when it was Primal Scream's little known MC5 period. Remember, they were like a kind of a twee bangle band. Yes, they were and, on the scene. Everyone, everyone, of course, knows the Scream Adelica thing. But in between that, they were like the MC5, like Leather Trousers. Do you remember that? It, they had a song called Ivy, Ivy, yes, Ivy. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Right? Les Paul guitar kind of thing. That's when that was going on. Um, but he was perf- he was a, quite a friendly guy too. So it was, it was cool because I was a fan of that label. I, I tended to be into the stuff that they were, you know, they were well over the Jasmine Minks and the Loft and the Bang Pal. They were into this other thing. Ride hadn't happened yet. It was, I guess, House of Love. House of Love were their, were their big band then. And I, I could never quite get into House of Love that much, but but I, I loved creation, you know, just the same. Yes. Well, it's, it's, it was an amazing label and still is in some ways. So, um, yes, good times. Well, that was kind of a pointless little tale that I brought up. But when you were talking about the zeitgeist, that somehow that popped into my head. Yeah. Brain. OK, just last thing. Did you buy, did you get a copy of this book by Neil Taylor, C86 and all that? No, I was, I, I, I've looked for that. I, I, I'm interested in that. I, 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 I will have to hunt that down. But it, it, is it good? It sounds, is it? It's a it's a it's a fantastic book. You 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 you've got to you've got to hunt it down and find it. Oh, cause, I will. Because um, excellent. Yeah, if you go to his Facebook page, and yeah. and probably you'll find out how you can order a copy. I mean, it might be the case that um, yeah, I I don't know what the postage is like to America. But... Well, that's all right. It's, I, I'm I love that stuff. Yeah, I will I will certainly check that out. And I have heard about it, but I've never actually. Oh, it's it's it, it will blow your mind. I just think it's the best book because it's so he he obviously was so into that scene at the time that it's almost like if anybody wasn't, they would think you know they wouldn't understand much of it. I don't right. think, but the detail, I love the detail of it and the. Oh, excellent! I'm going to check. I'm, I, I, I may look that up today. Yeah, <laughs> no, it, it is. I mean, I, I just, I was just amazed. I'd, I'd read one little bit and have to stop and just digest it. And think, oh God, yeah, that, that, right. yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he was obviously. He was, again, you know, just on the scene at that time. Yeah. Anyway, look, this has been brilliant. Thank you, Terry, ever so much for this. Um, It's been amazing. So, look, I'll keep in touch. But, again, thanks for the uh, interview and thanks for that album that you sent the other day. Um, Yeah, sure, David. It was great talking to you and and thanks very much. uh, Yes, no problem. Well, look, take care there. And, uh, yeah, do check out the book. But, yeah, all the best. And hopefully next year much better. Bye. And there you go, how to end a conversation. (laughs) So smooth. Anyway, that was me in conversation with Terry Banks, talking about what he's just talked about. I'm not going to repeat it. Anyway, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you can contact me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show. Also, these have all been archived on, uh, yes, Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Check it out. It might just change your life. It probably won't. Anyway, have a safe week.